guys. All right. With that, I'm going to hit admit, and then I'm going to share screen, and we'll do an introduction. So this is episode 61, State of the Market, specifically the New York market, but I guess we can branch into not New York. And we've got Lisa Lipman and Louise Phillips Forbes, two of the industry powerhouses. I mean, you guys are both so impressive. Um, and I'll stop sharing screen. Lisa is going to join us in a moment. I don't think she's with us yet. She's going to steal the show, honey. Don't worry about it. It's all good. She's my girl. Her photo shoot went long. But we've got Louise. And I just want to begin by saying thank you so much for kicking this off. You were our very first guest on our very first one. I mean, the first one we did was a panel. And then we said, let's do this again. Let's ask Louise. And she can carry the whole hour all by herself. And you did. And, oh, we just, and we just cut to the tape uh, of what life was like back in October 2020. And we said, so what's your advice? And I love that advice. The takeaway I got was you're not buying the you're not buying the bottom of the market. You're not picking a stock. You're picking a house. Uh, you're making a, a decision on a home and um, and look at where. We, and then you said, look where we were 18 months ago. What did you mean by that in October 2020? You know, listen, I think that um, in October of 2020, I mean, you know, honestly, the years are kind of moving so quickly. You know, we say that 2021, we did two years of business in one year. 2020, I was somehow or another broker of the year. However, it was the worst year I have had since Lehman collapsed. But honestly, I was able to keep everybody on my team employed. I, we all did the best we, we could. And I, um, and 18 months ago from October of 2020, you know, we had a lot of weird stuff happening both politically as well as, you know, domestic terrorism, if anybody remembers. And, you know, there wasn't we a lot were of- six, We were six months into the pandemic. And I think New Yorkers were feeling especially the effect of the pandemic because New Yorkers are social. But your market in October 2020 was you guys were nervous. You and Roberto were very nervous. I mean, listen, it was a mass. It was it was there had still been a mass exodus. And, you know, it's like when you listen to the news, they're usually either 16 weeks behind or it's so sensational that you you actually start to believe it and you know what's right for one person is not right for another person but I'm always and Lisa will agree very bullish on New York City real estate for a number of reasons number one you know if you think about it it's a city of renters so 66 percent of New York City is rent stabilized rent controlled or fair market only 38% of it can be, even with the construction boom of the last 15 years, even with the rezoning of 40% of the land mass that, that um, Bloomberg did in his 12 years, we're still only 38%. So we have a wealth preservation opportunity and a job diversity that is going to still make us always great, even when we have politicians that or policies that kind of try to attempt to screw that up. Um, 
so so I I guess my feeling is that um, understanding job security and understanding an emotional, I have made an emotional commitment that I'm probably going to go out in a box somewhere in New York City and I'm going to be sharing my, the rest of my life here. Um, if people aren't sure about that, then I don't even know. I mean, I couldn't live in most other cities. So I think so that's some of the differentials. So staying in the market about- in October 2020, there was a great deal of anxiety over the pandemic. There's a great deal of anxiety right now in the market, given that oh. we this time around we have a war and people you toss the recession word around and in inflation and interest rates around. So are you feeling the same kind of anxiety? And is this advice the same? Quit trying to pick the bottom of the market. Quit trying to um, time the market and pick a house? Or is the advice different this time around? Well, I mean, Roberto, did you want to jump in or do you want me to? I just wanted to say at that time, one of the greatest things about everybody's concern, we didn't even have a vaccine. I mean, there was, it wasn't even created. So there was a tremendous amount of just unknown. I mean, what we're looking at now is a little bit more known, a little bit in the sense of that these are financial issues, these aren't health issues. So. And, and I'm gonna remind you that if we look at the crises that I've lived through since I'm only about 37, um, <laughs> but you know, when you look at September 11th or you look at the savings and loans, or you look at, um, you know, Lehman, the financial crisis, financial terrorists and health crises, all are not the same. You got to remember that our government for over two years pumped trillions of dollars into our economy. Thankfully, I mean, I was able through PPE to keep some of the people that actually work for me. Um, and, and many of you all may have been able to have uh, participated in that, but you can't have an economy not be affected by that. Global, centrally, domestically, it's all affected. And the cause and effects of war and all of those other layered things, I mean, we had a, a coup that almost took place in our country. Mm-hmm. So we don't even need to go into the politics around that. But there has been some not confidence for a lot of people but I do believe the deals that I'm doing today, I just got a deal signed today, just under $4 million. And the buyers were like balking about the news. And they were like, we would like a $100,000 credit. And my owner, and they've been, they put their apartment on the market. They have a buyer, they have a contract out on that. The apartment was on the market for 13 days. I have other people, but I'm not trying to milk other offers. I'm just trying to not put pressure on a buyer who's given us a full price offer. And ultimately they, they were just like, well, the news and my stocks and I'm uncomfortable. And, you know, and I basically just said to my owner, it's a business decision, you know, but my instinct is that these people are desperate for this chapter of their life for the next 15 years. And I think we should call their bluff. And if you want to make a gesture, Make a gesture, make a pay. Instead of them paying the flip tax, let you pay the flip tax of 20,000 bucks, but take it or leave it and move on because you have a great asset. And I, and you know, I was right from the standpoint that they really wanted this house, but they felt like they had to ask for something. 
So I think mm-hmm. part of it is what's right for that seller. She really didn't need to sell. And it's a great asset. And we will have other people that will probably give her full price for it. But I think we as brokers have to lead our sellers and our buyers. And, you know, the tables are turning. So when you have a buyer, like that same asset that's asking 3995, a buyer made an offer of three and a half. And I was like, I'm so sorry, but where, what? And I, and you can't be dismissive. Wait, how does that sentence end? Wait. (laughs) I I literally was like, do you realize that they paid 3.4 in 2012? So I'm sorry, just show me what other comps you're using to compare this. And their broker was a family member, new in the business. And my job to her was here, let me give you every one of the contract signs and what they're in contract for. And, you know, she was like, We'll be back to you. <laughs> so can I can I jump in? Yes, jump in. of course. I've got my girls there. Welcome, welcome, Lisa. How are you? I was I was a little delayed taking photos, and I'm sitting in one of my listings because I thought that would be a good idea. Good marketing, babe. This has better views than my apartment does. Um, so you know, this is what I'll say. You're always going to have buyers who are always overly cautious about exactly when they're buying how much they're paying, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that those buyers have ever fueled our market. Um, those buyers often are looking for the lowest spot. You're never gonna, you, you can never find the lowest part of the market because if you're looking for the lowest time in the market, if you wait too long, it's over. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you look at some of the other markets, the people who are continue, continuing to buy in the Hamptons and Palm Beach and all that, not to say those aren't good places to buy, but Every one of those people has to know that they have been buying, is it the very top or close to the top? I mean, nobody who thinks that they paid three times what the last person bought their house for in Palm Beach really thinks that it's guaranteed when they go to sell it in three to five years, they're going to double their money again. You know, people don't buy real estate for that reason. It's a very different kind of purchase, right? It's not like being... um, you know, trying to buy stocks at the exact right moment. This is something you Uh-oh. live in. As long as it's a user property and it's not an investment property. Yeah, of course. But what, but what Louise is talking about and what's been fueling our market are not investors, right? We haven't had investors fueling the market in New York City in a really, really long time. Agreed. And the people, and the people fueling the market in Palm Beach and the Hamptons, which are the two markets that people have been speaking about so much lately, are not investors. These are users, these are end users. And these are people who clearly know they are buying in a very frothy market Um, and they don't care. So I actually think that the worst thing that we have right now is not that it's the bottom or it's the top. It's that people don't know. And it's, people don't know and people hate not knowing. I mean, I think if people knew, okay, the interest rates are gonna be 5%. And that's what they're going to be for the next two years. People would be like, great, I'm buying again. And everybody knew that the stock market was going to stay around where it is now, which is lower than it was a year ago, but not low compared to where it was three years ago. Everybody would be okay with that too. It's the unknown. And people are insecure about buying in a market that feels unknown. And you see that the most in buyers under $10 million, because those people are plenty wealthy, 
but they're not people that it makes zero difference whether the market goes up 20% or down 20%. And they're not people that it makes zero difference if the interest rates are 3% or 5%. What you see when it's over $10 million is that while people feel better, of course, when the stock market is up, those people don't even, it doesn't even matter to them. Their purchases aren't affected by whether the market's up or down. But all of the purchases that, you know, Louise is talking about, I have some people now too sitting on the fence. It's because the difference of 2% and the difference in the stock market is palpable to them because they're wealthy enough that they can buy, but not so wealthy that that stuff doesn't affect their overall wealth. Having said that, it doesn't mean that they're not going to buy. They're just trying to time it right. And if they had some certainty about where things were going to be in three or four months, they would pull the trigger. It's all about the lack of certainty. I mean, you know, every time somebody says, you know, I, I want to be able to get out of this if, if the market goes down or people who buy new dev and say, well, what if the market's down by the time I close? Well, what if the market's up? Are, do you expect the developer to charge you more? I mean, it doesn't work that let, way. Right? Like, but let, let me ask you something, Lisa. You, we've spoke about above 10 million, completely discretionary, it's choice. Then we've talked really from four or five to 10 million. What about, what about the, the people that are 2 million and below, one and a half million and below? Well, the people two and a half and below are very, very much affected by the difference in interest rates of three to 5% or two and a half to four and a half. Absolutely. That's the difference between being able to spend two or two and a half, right? Like yeah. that's the difference between maybe being able to buy a three bedroom in Manhattan or not being able to buy a three bedroom. Um, so yes, that, and you know, those people, if they really want to buy, maybe running to buy now before the interest rates go up. Um, and those people are also really affected the stock market changes. Um, and, and so that part of the market, I mean, you know, a colleague of mine just said to me, where are all the buyers between two and three million dollars? Well, that's where they all are. Yeah. They're all they're all worried. I just had somebody we had a contract out on something for three million. I thought they were getting a very good deal. And then backed out because they said, you know what? Our stock portfolio is down a lot. The interest rates just went up another half a bit. And the maintenance is a little high on the apartment. And that now makes it the confluence of those three factors makes the apartment not affordable to us anymore. Does so it make I them think, less board approvable? Is that was one of the concerns? I don't know that it makes them less board it, approvable it's, because it's those people, it, it's a comfort. Usually yeah. people buying apartments in New York City in the two to $3 million market co-ops, they're usually not so edgy that they won't pass the board anymore. It's usually more just their comfort. At least that's what I'm finding. I don't know. I think that most people who buy co-ops kind of know that they need to have some padding in their bank account. Um, so I haven't seen that so much. Like these people would still pass the board. It's just that they're not sure that they could sleep at night for the next two years. Um, and that made them more worry and I get it. So I think, I think you sort of have three markets and I know I came in late, so I don't know where I should, no. but like, I think you have the up to $4 million market or three to $4 million market where people are super, super sensitive about interest rates and the stock market because their homes are very large portions of their net worth, very large portions. Mm -hmm. And if you want to live in New York city, that's the way it is. Right. Um, and then four or five million to 10, you know, not to say those people aren't wealthy, but in New York, they're only sort of the 
wealthy, but not uber wealthy. And those people definitely were being a little bit more aggressive when the interest rates were super low and their stock portfolio was super high. And they have gotten a little less aggressive and they're feeling a little less, less excited and um, they have a little less bravado right now. Yeah. And I think the people over $10 million, they just buy something when they want it. I really think so. Like they've been waiting for something on Fifth, Central Park West, wherever it is. They buy it if they want it. Do they feel um, less, less inclined to bid aggressively? Maybe not because they're not as worried about competition, whether that's right or wrong. Yeah. But if they see what they want and whatever they want, if there's low inventory of, which there usually is when you get up to those numbers, they buy what they want. But isn't right now, we're coming into a time period of kind of dislocation. And historically, you know, 2000, spring of 2009, you know, a time period like that where that is where you're going to get the best deal. The fall of 2020, that is where you're going to get the best deal. So are these people, are you kind like I'm calling everybody saying, look, keep your eyes open right now because this is slowing and it's an opportunity for you. And some of them are all cash and they feel that cash is king, but that doesn't necessarily always carry that weight. But I think it's a time to keep their eyes out. I think that that pricing is going to become more and more crucial. Um, I think that I'm still seeing more than one offer on pieces of property when they are really data-drivenly, thoughtfully, and don't need work. There's always, in, in, in the last 45 days, deals that have gone in less than a month, in less than 30 days, typically have more than one offer. And in some cases... Um, they've gone above the asking price, even when there's not another offer because it hits the sweet spot for that person and they've been waiting for it. And, and I had more people all cash for one of my listings that's 3995. I think we had, to, and, and it happened to be, they volunteered this information, which I thought it was interesting out of 37 people that came, you know, of the people that volunteered, they must've been at least 17 people that were cash is cash. And they are looking and in the market to look to scoop a deal that feels like a fair price. Not the bottom, not thought, but thoughtfully. And Lisa, I, I know you, you're feeling this, you're experiencing some of the same thing. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I agree with you. In answer to your question, Roberta, though, because I think you were speaking a little bit more of like, what do you tell buyers? These are the things I tell buyers. Number one, I've never seen a fall that was better than a spring. Never, ever, ever. So, you know, I have buyers saying to me, if I say to them, look, I think it's a good time to buy. There are some real opportunities out there, things that have been reduced, things that have been sitting there for too long, haven't been yet reduced, but the sellers are motivated. And they'll say to me, well, I think things are going to get worse. I think things are going to get worse. It's going to be worse in the spring. It's only getting worse. My response always is none of us have a crystal ball. I have no idea if things are going to get worse. But what I can tell you is spring is usually better for sellers. And the spring, for 25 years I've been doing this, I think weezy has been doing it longer, but for the 25 years I've been doing it, spring has always been a better market for sellers than buyers. So if you're looking for a good deal, I wouldn't wait. I think the time is now, um, especially if you're a cash buyer and you haven't been interest rate sensitive. Um, but do, ca do cash buyers expect a discount? Always, always. And, you know, I mean, it's very funny because cash buyers expect a discount until you tell them that there are other cash buyers. And then their response is always like, oh, really? 
And, you know, I mean, my, my people who work with me um, in my office always know, like, I always like to say when somebody says, well, I've got this much money and I have a life, like, you know, you're in New York, buddy, get in line. Like, yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so true. Right? So true. You're, you're negotiating till there's someone else in the picture and then you're no longer negotiating. You're competing. Exactly. Um, and that's, you know, and, you know, and that's one of, with regards realize. to what you said about the, about the fall, I've always, I always tell my buyers, I say, look, you want to be buying when people are hesitant, because I think the biggest barrier to entry into this marketplace is not necessarily the price. It's the competition. And come spring, like you're saying, which is better for the sellers, it's because there's more competition. And that, I think, is a bigger barrier to entry. Right. But, you know, the, the lay person doesn't see that. I mean, I'll talk, you know, my husband, we were looking for potentially a bigger house up in Connecticut because, you know, as a broker, you always need something a little better. Right. And <laughs> so now because the interest rates are higher, the stock market's on his foot and he works on Wall Street. In fact, he works with Roberto's wife. He said to me, I don't think we should be buying. Now's not the time to buy. The interest rates have gone up. The stock. I said, exactly now is the time to buy. Like we should look for the deal. Other people aren't looking. Like, why would you say that? You know, you don't want to buy when everybody else is buying. I mean, that's what's happening in Palm Beach. Why is that? I got, a, qu I got a question for your uh, Connecticut husband. Uh, in New Canaan, we've got 77 uh, listings on the market. Does your husband, and that's down from what, 250. Does your husband think that New Canaan, Greenwich, Westport, wherever you're looking, does he think that the inventory is going to pick up in the spring? Well, so we are not looking where you are. We're looking where are we have a house in Kent, Connecticut. So we're looking up and, you know, up there. Can you go um, to Salisbury? Because I'll rent it from you. OK. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know that he thinks that much about whether there's going to be more inventory. He's talking about his own comfort level of when he feels comfortable buying. But the problem is, is when you feel comfortable buying, everybody else does. Literally. And that makes the prices go up. Um, I mean, look what's happening in Palm Beach. People have felt so good about Palm Beach. That's why everything's so expensive. Well, now you should look for something else on the waterfront that people don't feel as good about and be the first one buying, right? The, the lack of inventory is not really affecting the decision. I have clients who've been looking for a year or two for their dream house and uh i think they're bummed out by the lack of choice yeah well we have a lack of choice when we're looking in connecticut too i mean and what i find in connect where i am in connecticut which may be somewhat you have there's like enough sort of stuff under a million and then there's enough stuff that's like over five or six and there's not enough between let's say two and four um and that's a big issue and i bet that's the problem you have also well, I'm glad you brought that up. We're going to show you last month's sales. There they are, 21 sales. And you'll see three expensive ones, three uh, cheap ones under a million. And yeah. Everything else is between 1 million and 2.6. Yeah. yeah. The bulk yeah. of our market is a million to 2.6. And this is the 21 sales in New Canaan last month. Following yeah. So, you know, that's that's what we're seeing. Same as you. There's if you're looking for something under a million, they're scarce as hen's teeth. There's a lot of listings over five, but we're only selling one or two or three, in, you know, in any given month. But, you know, let's talk about like just going back to being a buyer now. You know, historically, what I've noticed in the last two or three years and, and Louise and I sell very much in the same market 
is that on the Upper West Side, there has not been enough inventory in sort of the three and a half to $5 million market. The really nice four bedroom apartments and good buildings, you know, just good apartments, good sort of second apartment after someone's, you know, gotten too, gotten too big for their classic six or who's been renting a seven for a long time really wants to now buy. We haven't had enough. Well, suddenly there's like four or five on the market, which doesn't seem like a lot, but that's actually a lot. So if you're a buyer now, this is a great time to buy. There are actually choices. You might not get outbid because before they were getting, if they were priced well, they were getting scooped up in like one minute and they had multiple bids on them. So it's actually a great time to buy. Yet I have a buyer now saying to me, well, there's, there's so many on the market. I'm like, rejoice. Like this is your moment. Louise, I have something for you. Or or maybe you, Lisa, I, I got a call saying, can you list my farm? I think it's like 30, 20 acres or 30 acres, upper west corner, northwest corner of Connecticut. And I said, well, what's been the problem? And they said, the owner won't get rid of the mink traps. Mink? Wait, mink traps? Yeah, there's all these mink traps behind the barn. And it's really put a damper on uh, all the showings. <laughs> wow. Gracious. Well, that's tell me exactly why is that for why is that for me? Because you think well, I, I I need a I new. I think we can just get rid of the mink traps and kind of you know spruce up this two million dollar gentleman's farm. It sounds like right up your alley, Louise. Right. Get right I mean, you know, look, we're in we're in a market that I always say you know used to be politicians would say it's the economy stupid. You know what? Right now it's the price stupid. Like, and what I always tell my sellers is this: there's a formula, right? They have to do their half the formula. I have to do my half the formula. They have to give me access. They have to keep it looking nice. They have to listen to me about pricing. I have to do my half. I have to make sure that I get it ready to look great. I have to take beautiful photographs. I have to give them great advice about what needs to be done to the property. I have to answer my calls and my emails, and I have to show the property when people ask me to show it. And beyond that, the last thing is price. And if it's priced correctly, your property will get what it's worth. There's no other magic. I mean, that's a lot of magic I just talked about, but that's the magic formula. And if you price it wrong, it doesn't matter how much of the other stuff you do, it's not going to sell. And that is sometimes the hardest thing to explain to a seller. And, and, and Lisa, I, I'll always say that I don't mind being the third wife of a listing if right. it's priced properly. Of course. And, and I, you know, I just listed a piece of property that was on the market for $38 million at one point. And it's been on the market for 38, 28, 22, 19, 17. It's now at 14 and a half. It's almost wow. 8,000 square feet. And, you know, I've been on the market today as the first official day, but I have second shows already because people are familiar with the property and it's all about pricing. Where is it? <laughs> 230 West 56th streets, full floor, 7963 square feet, 360 yeah. square feet. I mean, 360 degrees of parameter views, which is amazing. But the, the, the point is, is that, you know, we don't, we can't make up the market and, and, and this is why I often, and I, you know, listen, I've not been perfect on pricing because it is a very difficult time to price. You, you, you know, nobody wants to hear 
um, how they need to adjust. But I, I just have a listing I'm bringing back on the market. And I had told him initially what I thought it was worth. And, and we tried to list it where he wanted to list it. And it, we just can't make up the market. And I think that's important to, for us to hold our price, our, our position, instead of a lot of brokers from different companies. And they're usually the same individuals that do a lot of business of just take a price and then they get it and they just hold it. And then they try to get the price down. And I just think that's a disservice to the industry. What do you say when they, yeah. when you recommend five and they say, let's just try it at five and a half or do you I'm recommend just, more? Right let's person. just try it. I'm not the right person. I'm not. If the right you person. do such a thing, if you do such a thing, you have to say, look, if we don't get a certain amount of traction within two weeks, we're immediately dropping the price. But I personally am someone like Louise. I don't, I hate to reduce the price. It's just blood in the water. Just don't do it. You're better to price a little bit lower and have people reach for it than you, because you lose all your negotiating leverage the moment you lose your, you reduce your price. I have a question about- I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with that 100%. I don't think that I agree with that. I think that- um, I do. What I try to explain to people is that if you price it too high, you bring in the wrong buyer. And that is what I explain to sellers. And it's, it's not a question that people are going to bid lower than your ask, because people tend not to do that, especially when it's new on the market. You're going to bring in the wrong buyers. But sometimes you have somebody who is just very house proud or has been told something or imagined something or has been banking on something, whatever it is. So I usually tell people, look, let's try it. And if we're not getting enough showings, if we're not getting second showings and we're not getting offers, after several weeks, we should agree that we may have to, you know, lower the price. I don't give them a certain set time. I, I don't know. I, but everybody has a different style. You know, one of the things I just want to mention, which I think is super important in pricing, because it is the hard, I think it's the hardest part of the job, is this listing that Louise is talking about, which is at the Park Imperial. The reason why listings like that ended up being so grossly overpriced is that the Park Imperial sold for very, very high numbers when there was no other buildings like it. And the hardest thing to do when you're pricing is to not only look at comps, but you need to look at what else is available in that price category, what people's choices are. Because choices make a really big difference because I've sold in new buildings where when I sold the first time, it was the only thing out there and it commanded X. And then 10 years later, even if the person has redone it or taken good care of it or whatever, if there are other new things out there, it goes down by a lot more than people imagine. So what happened to the Park Imperial, which is 230 West 56th Street, is that all those brand new buildings went up on 57th Street. And so it wasn't yep. a new thing in town and it wasn't as fancy an address and the amenities aren't as new. So I say that only because I'm using it as an example that the toughest thing is to Try to make your seller understand that it's not just comps. It also has to do with what else is available. And I know that this past two years, I've had a hard time selling some of the co-ops that I've had on Central Park West because we had a couple of new buildings that went up on the West side. And some of the people that were looking for 5,000 square feet or something that would have come to CPW in the past decided to go further inland or away from the park and, and buy new development because it was an option. Do they so, want the amenities? Are they going for the amenities? People are going for amenities. You know what <laughs> happens is that 
people go for amenities. They go for the fact that they don't have to disclose any of their financial information. When the interest rates were so low, they could finance 90%. I mean, you have to understand that people who spend 15 and $20 million, they can purchase something and they can literally finance 90% and they can do it in a way, it's called an interest tracing loan, that they can deduct all of the interest. And I won't get into what it's now. You have to have the ability to pay cash for the for the um, property and you pay cash. And then within two to three weeks, you take out a loan. That's a loan on money that you are going to um, use to buy securities. It can't have a direct connection to the real estate and you can then deduct all of the interest. But obviously you have to be very wealthy to do that. But people do that kind of thing. Yep. I had now, you can do it. I shouldn't say you can do it on a co-op too, but when the interest rates were so low, that kind of thing got very appealing. And sometimes people just took out direct loans on their condos that way. Louise, that, you were going to say? I was, I, I was going to say that that's exactly what happened to the person who bought, Lisa, you're not going to like this, 498 West End Avenue. Penthouse. Lisa got outbid. It's okay. Um, My people bought it um, 378 and they're very happy. Yay. <laughs> and they spent more money. So there you go. So, so you're happy. Yep. Oh, good. They're happy. <laughs> Everything so happens happy. exactly the way it's supposed to. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But at the end of the day, that that purchaser did that exact same situation that Lisa's just talking about. Yeah. It's a great way of monetizing that opportunity. Right. So do you, what, do you, what do you guys tell your sellers who priced uh, in February, March, put their pro property on the market, it's still sitting there. And if they don't get any traction in the next month, they're probably not getting any traction until spring. What do you tell them right now? I, I ask them what their timeline is. And I say, if, you, if you're not in a rush, you might take it off the market and put it back on in the spring. And if you do want to sell your property, then we're going to have to consider a price reduction. And it has to be a real price reduction. You know, it can't be 2%. I don't think that if you reduce something any less than 5%, and these days I'm thinking even 7 to 8% minimum, I don't think anybody even pays attention. Well, but I, I will say, Lisa, that I do feel that they're, they're you know, I, you, I, I never paid attention to listing saved on street easy until I had a listing not sell in a timely manner. And then I found it to be an interesting correlation to if I did make a price reduction, um, there have been times where sometimes $50,000 makes enough of a difference, Lisa, to get somebody to move. But, but I, I don't disagree with you overall, but when those, when those are unusual assets that, they're really not comps for them, but they, and they should have sold. I do believe that sometimes a gesture just re-engages because it, it's, it's that technology game of shooting out to everybody that has that search in. I just found that to be, I, I received two or three offers in September on property that I didn't do a big reduction on, but that I did make a gesture and it seemed to be enough to push it over the edge. And that was on a lower end of a budget, you know? 
Can we can we talk about foreigners for a second? Not foreign buyers, because right now the dollar's so strong that it's really almost prohibitive. But I've had two phone calls from foreign sellers who bought years ago. And because of the strength of the dollar, they're looking at the potential arbitrage of taking that money and repatriating it back into their country and making a windfall. Have you had any of those calls? And also, are they missing something? Or is there a tax consequence there that they would have to? That, what, how, am I missing something that that doesn't seem like a very interesting addition if someone is spend 20, you know, they've, they've gone through 20 years of their life cycle of this apartment and they're kind of done, but now is the time. I, I have two people specifically that I'm currently working with that are in that case, whether one's Italian and one is uh, Singapore and, um, and that they're making the decision. I think it's one could have been actually for earmarking the funds to something else, but the Italian is definitely uh, based on the dollar there, the lira, if you will. Is that something for us to pursue with all of our foreign owners is to call them and say, listen, right now, if you'd ever thinking about selling right now, may be an interesting time. I think that it, I think that you, it would, you would be wise to understand what's going on in their specific country because one size doesn't always fit all. And, and so I, I, you know, I mean, listen, obviously I just showed, um, I've showed apartments to people that are from Ukraine for the last, you know, I've had three different buyers come to three different pieces of property that, you know, have, have fled. I don't know, you know, I don't know if that is, a cause and effect, but I mean, the, I think our sellers are, are, you know, I think that that's, I think it depends on the country. Lisa, do you have any of that experience yourself? No, not at all. Mm -mm. Do you, so can we talk about um, new development and, uh, and or conversions? Um, how, how are, how is that marking tracking? Is it strong? Are they having to offer enormous concessions. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's product specific as well, but just curious I, as an I overall. I would say it's, I think it's product specific. And I also think that, you know, there. You cut out Lisa. Yeah, we lost you. I think it's product specific. And I also think there was the market before May and there was the market after May. So I'll speak to that just because I feel like I'm giving birth to a community right now at 393 West End Avenue, you know, um, and that is, you know, a 1920s building, uh, Nancy Ruddy renovation, Rabina development project. Uh, Lisa and I have a deal in there. Um, it's at 79th and West End. And, you know, we pivoted five months before I even had anything. I was selling dirt in a dream. Um, but there was nothing on the market when we came on the market. And now I'm in a place where I will tell you surprisingly in August and July, we did almost a deal, um, a deal a week um, in, in August. And, you know, it is, and that is ranging from a million and a half to 7.2 million. So it is a sweet spot for our neighborhood. 
and primarily three and four bedrooms, and I will be selling out 80% of the building. Um, and I, I, I think that first of all, new conversions are a dying breed because of the rent laws that change. So there will be no more. And I think that I'm working on a, an article um, talking about the cause and effect of the unintentional consequences of the rent laws that were changed in, in 2019 and the amount of tax revenues from city and state transfer taxes from what normal velocity is for conversions to zilch is an impact that is costing New York City and New York State billions of dollars to the tune of something like 4,000 absent units in the market just over the last three years of normal velocity of conversion uh, inventory. It's down 73% or something like that. And I just think that that's really an interesting data point. You're working on a report with that? On yeah. that subject? Wow. I look forward to seeing that. Um, I, I the city's losing both. a tremendous amount of a tax revenue with all of this, even with the commercial valuations, et cetera. It's going to be, something's going to happen here. Sorry, I'm in John. awe of how busy you two are. You always have. Last time we talked to Louise, she had 40 uh, listings. Uh, you Both of you always have two to three dozen listings. And for all of the all of the other realtors on this call, and I mean all of them, including Roberto and I, that's a dizzying amount of work. And so I'm interested in the work-life balance. I'm interested in how you keep that pace up. I'm interested in how you organize yourself, manage your time. I just want to be Lisa. That's what, that's the deal. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> because you, 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 I just feel like you're, you're always so disciplined and balanced and obviously work like a maniac and has such great respect for you. But, um, but I do find that you're usually always consistent, which I find that's very challenging for me. Mm. And well, I work out like six days a week just to try to like keep some. There of are little clues in how Lisa speaks to us in this hour. When she says, you're in New York, buddy, get in line. I think to myself, oh, that's it. You don't tolerate, uh, you know, a lot of bullshit. Do you, Lisa? I mean, you are a busy woman. And when somebody's <laughs> like, you know, I think we should just go look, you know, when you're ready, come see me. I'm a busy woman. And when you're serious about yeah, buying I actually an apartment, don't. maybe I, actually, I can fit you in. No, not true. Okay. Um, okay. That's not Lisa. Fact, I, I've worked with um, Scott Moore. He's worked with me for 22 years and he thinks that I'm the most patient person he's ever met in his life. So um, I'm actually not like that. I just often chuckle to myself when I see people behave in a certain way. Um, because I think to myself, I don't know, I was brought up in a house where money was not the most important thing. My father was a primary care physician. And the most important thing in the house that I grew up in was being a good person and working hard and being honest. So I kind of feel like that's what I stick to. And I keep my nose down and I just do my thing. Um, you know, having said that, I was given a good brain and I am a very organized person and I have zero ADD and I have a very good memory and that is very helpful to me. So I can just tell you when I talk to the people who work with me on my sort of mini team, 
you know, sometimes I'll sit at my desk and I'll say this and this, and we have to do this, and we have to do this. And they're all like, slow down. None of us can keep up with the pace that your brain goes at. So all I'm saying is I have a certain kind of a brain that I think that uh, is able to just sort of, it's good for this business. I'm very good at multitasking and keep, keeping it all straight in my brain. What, what am I not great at? I'm not great at being in crowds and socializing a lot. Like I think a lot of brokers are really love going to all those things. That's not great. I'm not great at that. I think I have some social anxiety. Um, I'm not great at sort of putting myself out there um, to get business. Not comfortable for me at all. Um, you know, I'm what surprised. do I, what I do, what'd you say? I'm surprised. Um, you know. um, I am, I, um, you know, my work-life balance is really, I'm, I'm a lucky person. I have three children who I adore and I'm really close to. Um, they're not little, so I say it in a different way. They're 28, 25, and 17. Um, I have a second husband. I went through a terrible divorce many years ago, but I have a second husband who I've been married to for 20 years, who I'm really, really happily married to. And he is um, a great support to me, works really hard too, but um, we're a really good balance. So, you know, I feel very blessed by a lot of the things I have in my life. And I actually think that that keeps you really focused yeah. because I, I don't, I'm not envious. I'm not thinking about all the other things I should be doing. I just sort of, like I said, I, I put my head down and I stick to what I'm doing. Um, and, and I like my job. <laughs> like I actually really like it. And if I don't like somebody or I'm not enjoying something I'm doing, I tend to lose interest in it. And, and then I, and then it just goes away and, and that's okay with me. Right. Right. I, I, I echo that. I, um, uh, just the complete opposite. I'm 100% ADD and dyslexic. So there you go. Um, however, my dyslexia, I, my spatial memory is like Rain Man. So your biggest obstacles sometimes can be your best secret weapon. Sure. And, um, and you I- You are good in a social situation, Louise. I, I have seen you in a social situation. People well, flock to you. They want to talk to you. They want to be around you. Well, you know, I, I, I do like people and I do like connecting people. And it doesn't always have to be about business. You know, I've sort of woven my work life into the fabric of my personal life. I met my husband on a blind date from one of my clients. I think I have eight or nine godchildren who I've been to their christenings or baptisms or namesaking. You know, uh, I'm going to Africa to my godchild's wedding, who was my client who set me up with my husband. You know, it's like my business life is woven and part of the fabric of my work life. And um, because I do believe what we do is a privilege and, and an incredibly um, sort of sacred thing that we get to be a part of. And I, you know, when I was looking for my apartment, I knew I was home. I wasn't even in the market. My buyer was like, this is a dump. And I'm like, holy shit, I think I'm going to buy it. And it was the same way when I met my husband on a blind date, I had that same chemical chemistry reaction of like, I knew I was home. And I think that's a privilege to be a part of that day in, day out. And sometimes we're not appreciated. Like Lisa, I, I usually, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I have probably more patience with, with, um, 
um, with buyers than than and sellers. But I also see how vulnerable or how stressful this process is, and I feel like my job is to make any and everything I can as best as I can. I can't control everything. You've got 24 listings. Every one of them wants probably a piece of you every day. Lisa, you've got 35 listings. Every one of those mouths, you know, uh, chickies in the nest, you know, has to be fed. They all want to talk to you about how it's going. How do you manage that? The, the, uh, let's start with the dyslexic one with the ADD. <laughs> well, thankfully, I have a Bible, which is my list of all of my business because I am a paper person and I take ferocious notes. Um, one day I'll figure out how to keep it all in my phone, but I don't. Um, I'm going to be, I always say I'm going to be buried with like a bucket of, of paper, you know? Yeah. I have a bunch of those too, but, but um, you know, it's about touching and having the systems to touch and it doesn't always have to be me, but, you know, trying to touch and, give, you know, feedback on appointments. And, you know, I, I do also say that the first 30 people through your door is your buyer. And, and if we're not getting 30 people through the door in three weeks, four weeks, we're probably missing a little bit of the market. Um, but I think that that kind of touching, I touch weekly. Sometimes when I have my new, my new listings in the first day of an open house, I, I have to talk to them at night and, and, you know, because it's busy. And um, as far as my buyers are concerned, you know, it is a, you know, it's, it's a tough market um, trying to be timely, especially when we kind of recovered over what last April, May, June, you know, over a year ago, what we were going through with our buyers. And I'm, I'm, you know, most of my business, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've probably had more buyer deals in the last two years, um, you know, probably pushing more like 20 deals with buyers as opposed to 15 or 12 the years prior to the pandemic because the buyers were leaning into this market. So Lisa, how do you keep up with them? One thing I'll just say, I want to just backtrack a little bit on what I said or just explain. I um, I would say that I, I'm very patient with people who are nice. Where I lose patience is when buyers or sellers are disrespectful and not nice. I, I think that you do get to a point in your career that you sort of feel like I work really hard um, and I'm going to give you a lot of my attention, but in, um, in return, you're going to have to be respectful to me. So I often do lose interest in people that I just don't find very nice or very respectful. Um, and and I'm okay never enough. No, and, and I'm okay with that. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm a, I'm a big girl now and um, I'm okay with that. Um, so how do I keep track? I mean, so I actually don't use paper so much anymore. Um, and I do put everything in my, I put a lot in my phone. Um, my secret really is though, and I probably should write stuff more down and I'm, and I, I rely on my memory, but I work all the time. Um, and any broker who's successful will tell you they work all the time. Um, and you know, you're right that the when you have a lot of listings, everybody wants a piece of you, and everybody wants you to check in and keep up with them. And sometimes I hear brokers say, "Oh, I'm so annoyed by my seller. They're so annoying." 
thing and this and that. And I've had younger people work for me and say, you know, why is that person checking in with us? And what I always explain to them is like, we're getting paid a lot of money. And when we agree to take on a listing, part of agreeing to take on a listing is being responsible for the listing and responsible to the person. And the person has hired you because you're successful and have other things, but it's not their problem that you have a lot of listings. And you have to remember that. So you have to be patient and you have to be responsive. And when somebody says to me that I haven't been responsive enough, which always happens to everybody in this world, no matter what you do, I'm apologetic and I explain that I'm sorry. And I never use the excuse that I've been busy with other people because no one wants to hear that. Really? Um, So, you know, you do your best. And um, I do sort of have a, a way I do things that every two weeks, I, I, every week I rotate who I send a report to, even if there's nothing going on. I go over the marketing we've done. I go over what's going on in the market. And what I've also found, this goes back to all of this, like pricing and the market, is the more you keep in touch with a seller and the more you let them know about what you're doing and what's going on, the more they're going to listen to you yeah. about reducing a price if it's necessary. Absolutely. If you don't keep up with them and you them that you're doing anything and then you just ask them for price reductions they're going to kind of look at you and say well i don't know is that all you have but if you show them what you're doing everything you possibly can i have found that most sellers are hearing you when it comes time to a price reduction or if you've showed an apartment 37 times and you've had seven second shows and just can't get an offer from someone we're missing a market right or you're not showing it enough. I mean, I've got a couple of sellers who have said to me, I don't see why I should you know, lower the price because no one's even coming to see it. And then my response is, the reason why no one's coming to see it is that it's too expensive online. And you know, one thing I will just tell all the brokers out there, remember <laughs> to, to tell your sellers about the fact that things have changed in the last 10 to 20 years. Street Easy has made this market completely transparent. And every buyer thinks they're an expert and every buyer looks at all the comps and looks at what everything else is treated for. And whether they know a lot or they don't know a lot, they think they know a lot. And if something online looks too expensive, people don't come. That's when they save them from street easy and you have 117 people saved on your listing. And that is exactly what I just said to one of my owners and, and, and that it does, it does matter whether it's a tech game or not, but, but also it is helpful to have that consistent touch in con- And I am better on the phone than I am in writing a dissertation. Um, well, I so- think we need to do both. I always say, I mean, somebody taught me this a really long time ago. I forget who it was, but like, if you have something important to do, do not do it on email or text. You need to get on the phone at the very minimum. And once in a while, I'll say to a client, can I come over and talk to you? Can we meet for a coffee? Like, you know what? That means a lot to a client also. FaceTime is super important. And I have found when you have to have a difficult conversation about a significant price drop, if you offer to meet with a person, it is much, much more meaningful. Absolutely. And and I think to that point of constant communication and feedback. Um, I usually keep a spreadsheet on my feedback and I'm relentless about follow-up. And by the way, 
Nothing is more appreciated. I try to give people follow up. I showed somebody, which is why I have no voice on Tuesday. I showed somebody 20 apartments and, you know, we left the day with six that we're keeping and we're not interested in the others. And we've honed in exactly what she's focused on. And yes, there were 20 apartments in the three bedroom and four bedroom market on the Upper West Side. And, and honestly, every broker, I proactively sent them a response to the feedback and they, and every one of them were like, two people called me and says, thank you. My, my owner is so anxious. So I appreciate it. So please, when brokers reach out to you and you showed their apartment respond, because it is, it is such helpful feedback for us in defending where we are with our listing. One last question I have social media, a lot of pressure on top agents to put themselves out there on social media every day. And we've seen famous, famous agents like Sir Hunt build entire agencies off of doing it well. And everybody in my office is being told, you have to do that more. You need more, more, more. It's hard enough responding to your clients every day, but to also be a media darling, maybe it's just a bit too much. How do you two feel? I mean, have you engaged in the social media uh, hamster wheel? We, we, we have, I, I don't like it. I mean, I'm, as I said, I'm dyslexic. So I, I don't, I don't like it. I, I do have to prepare for it. And I don't, I can't have, uh, I, I, I can do short moments of it. And so I do think it's important. Um, you know, people I've come to learn, people know me uh, that follow me that I don't know. And that I do think that people like understanding who that person is they're choosing to work with as a person. Um, does it help your business? Does it get you listings? It it does, but I I I I was I have been like because you're good at it, and I, I still have my doubts as to how productive it is. Oh, I've definitely I've sold listings. Um, I mean, I just was at my dentist this morning and she's like, oh my God, I was on street easy and she's cleaning my teeth. And she's like, and I saw you in two listings and I'm thinking you haven't called me to sell your, to help you find an apartment. (laughs) But, um, you know, she's just saying that those videos are really great. Now she then followed me on street on um, Instagram after she saw me on a video. I thought that was interesting. I don't know, Lisa, we, we, when you and I aren't, huge fans of it, but you're really good at it. And you're always so informative. I don't know. I, you know, what you said is true that I feel like I've had to do it. Like I was at a wedding recently and uh, sitting with a friend of mine who's been in sales forever and he's been on television forever. And he commented that one of our mutual friends was selling so much. And I said, well, you know, I sell a lot too. And he goes, well, no one would ever know from your Instagram. It's so boring. You never have anything on there. And I thought, oh, gosh. Um, oh my gosh. So, so I upped my game. Um, and you, you know, did. But, I, but I'm not comfortable selling myself. That's not my shtick. I never will be. And what I always tell people when I do training classes is you have to be true to yourself. If you are not true to who you are, you will not seem real. So I am never going to be one of those people who's going to get out in front of a camera and talk about how great I am and how they should use me because it's just not my thing. So what I've done is I come in on a yacht in a helicopter and 
exactly. show a hundred million dollar house. Yeah, but a exactly. lot of people you know put what? a lot of nonsense on. That's what they do. You know, it has to be something of value. You know, right. there's a so lot of nonsense. I did this one video and it was it was a wonderful video. It got so much traction on it. One of my biggest clients, he's just like, that was a lot to watch, to watch you throw a flower in a vase. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, look, there's like, always going to be there's always going to be people who are haters on these things. So I basically I realized that most of my audience are other brokers. So or sometimes they may be buyers or sellers. I give advice on things. What I do once in a while, I talk about a new listing. Lately, I've been videoing um, at a new listing. Um, I mean, personally, I think it's a little silly when when brokers like, you know, post that they were number one that month, number two that month. Like. I just think other brokers are seeing it. I don't really, I don't know. I hate the humble brags. They, I think, I think they're gross in all social media. Um, but you know, I'm old, I'm 58 years old. So I realized, you know, someone like Sir Hant is a lot younger than me and young people have money um, and the world has changed. And according to my children, um, TikTok is where it's at. Um, but I don't know that I'm comfortable doing that. Can you so dance? Can I dance? Yeah, I can dance like an old lady, but like, you know, I mean, nobody wants to see me in a bikini anymore. You know, yeah, again, you have to be, you have to be true to yourself. Um, so I don't know, like today I just, I have a new listing coming out on the East side and it was staged by Kathy Hobbs. So she said, we offer you a few, a free video. So I did a video for them because it was partly to promote her business. And I thought like, this is a good video because it's mainly about the apartment. And that may be good for something, right? Like to bring it on to the market, that might be worthwhile. But I don't know. I think a lot of it is fluff. Um, I do think sometimes they're too long, speaking to what Louise said. I can't stand them when they're long. I mean, the name will go unmentioned, but a broker took over one of my listings and we at Brown Harris had done it in a very conservative fashion and we didn't have a video. We didn't have a drone because the owner didn't want a drone and another broker took it over and did a drone and they did the video, but the video is so long. Like, <laughs> I don't get that. Like who sits and watches a video for 20 minutes of an apartment? Oy, you know? Somebody who isn't selling apartments. That's correct. Yeah. I'll hand it to both of you that every time that I've had to deal with any sort of negotiation, especially with Lisa, because I've done a handful of deals with Lisa. Louise, I cannot believe we've never done a deal together, but when what's it comes to negotiating, that? I don't know what's up with that, but every time it comes to the negotiation, we peel the onion back very quickly. There's a lot of transparency. There is no waste of time. There is an exploration of the possibilities, and it's that that has made the deals happen. And I would say that that is one of the most crucial things between the two of you. We haven't done a deal, but we've talked a handful of times, and we saved each other a lot of time, and we just moved on. But I would say that's a big attribute of the two of you. Thank you. Thank you. I think being generous with your knowledge is, is, is very helpful. I mean, Lisa, I, I can't tell you how many times, hundreds of times I've called Lisa and said, Hey, and what, what are you in contract for? And, you know, you will have people that will say, you know, we haven't closed yet. We don't have board approval. And it's just like, excuse me. So I just think that generosity should be reciprocal and it should also be present. I think look, and generosity and spirit should be in everything we do. I mean, the world is such a better place in business, in life, in everything, if people are helpful to each other. Um, and I, you know, I actually think that the brokerage community has gotten nicer in the 25 years that I've been doing it. I think in the beginning, it was a little bit of a, 
a club and new people weren't welcomed as much. I mean, you know, I'm always nice to everybody unless they're rude or nasty to me. Um, and and I, I've always felt that it's important to help each other. And um, I mean, look, in the end, it helps deals get done for all of us, right? I mean, it's like anything else. Like the more knowledge we all can impart to each other, the better everybody does. Yeah. Yeah, and this Gosh. is gonna be those times, the next two quarters, three quarters that that generosity is going to matter because it's going to be crucial to getting deals done or not. I saw one person's question come up and I want to answer it quickly. Somebody said, do you pre-qualify buyers? No. If you're a new broker, waste your time. Take out buyers, take them out, show them some apartments. If they end up not being qualified, you've wasted a little bit of time, but don't pre-qualify them right away. You need to get to know somebody. If you would you like it if somebody met you and right away you asked them they they asked you how much money you had? You can't do that right away. You can't do that right away. I I don't know. When I did new broker training a thousand years ago at Corcoran, they told me to pre-qualify everybody and I just didn't do it and it worked out. No. (laughs) And I think that that at minimum, if you're taking them out, you're learning the market. You're exactly. realizing you're, yourself. You're never going to waste yeah. time. You've gone to see And then you properties. go to a cocktail. Yeah, I love that. Lisa, I heard you talk about like, and then you happen to see this and, and you go and look at, thank God they're broker open house tours again, because this is how we connect and we connect the dots. It's like, oh, by the way, I'm getting something at 1065th. And oh, by the way, I'm getting something at 211 Central Park West. And you know, it's like, then it's like, oh, I think I have somebody. And then I remember to send you an email, Lisa. That is how we collaborate unconsciously and always. Right, right. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like people always say to me, why do you still do some print advertising? Why do you do this kind of, and I always say, you know, the problem with the computer is it's a computer, right? And so a search is limited by search parameters. And that's where the human brain comes in. That's why we do print advertising. That's why we talk to people because you never know where a buyer's coming from, where a seller's coming from. You have to be able to think out of a box and the more doors you walk through, the more things you go and see, the more people you talk to, the better you're gonna be at this job because this job, as you said in the beginning, it's all about connecting people and connecting things, properties to different people. And you never know where a buyer's going to buy. You never do. I mean, you know, used to be an old adage that buyers were liars. I don't like to say that. I think that buyers <laughs> often don't know what they want in the beginning. And it's a process for them to figure it out. And sometimes if you get to know them really well, you can sometimes suggest something to them that they might not have thought of and it ends up working out. But the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you go and see lots of things and have your, your ears and your eyes open. AKA 20 apartments on Tuesday. <laughs> but um, I will say that, that um, you know, Lisa, the same thing you're saying is sort of leading, your, leading the process. And I really think that is, you know, a true partnership where it's like, you know, that, that day when I was taking, I, this is, I've told this person three places previously, and this will be our fourth transaction. And I said, we're not focusing on closets. We're not focusing, like, I want you to focus on your instinct, your gut, look at the relationship to money and space and how you feel walking in the building into the apartment, and then we'll dumb it down. And, you know, it was a very constructive 
I mean, for us to get through 20 apartments and her know exactly the six that she's interested in and be able to dismiss everything else. Um, I just think that was good, good leading of a process. Yep. Last thing, everybody see this view behind me? I'm Where is it? Ninth floor at 50 Central Park West. This is a gorgeous apartment. It's asking $20 million, but it's negotiable. Real sellers, 5,000 square feet, triple mint condition. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I'm pointing right now at the kitchen. It's an open kitchen. In that kitchen, you can see the park. Look at this. We, we oh, sold that apartment together a long time we ago. We did. We do. And now it's completely renovated. Look at that. I love your bracelets. Thanks. <laughs> guys, I can't tell you how much I thank you for being here. You guys have always been so gracious with your time. I will come knocking again because we'd love to get you back together again. But thank you so much. You thank guys you have so, so much, much to impart. And yeah. We appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye, bye guys. guys. Sorry. Bye, guys. Frog in my thank throat. You. Thank you. Bye.